The scripture reading today comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 100. This is a psalm for giving thanks, and in verse 1, the word of the Lord reads, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God, and it is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we attempt to understand God's word and apply it to our lives? Father, we ask that you would be our teacher through your spirit. And Father, we just ask that you would convict us as individuals in the areas and ways that we need conviction. Father, we ask that you would help us to pull the logs out of our own eyes so that we might see clearly to pull specks out of others so that we might be a church who is the bride of Christ, who lives faithfully and strongly and powerfully for your good and your glory and your great name. Help us now, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. The day that she had been dreaming of her entire life had finally arrived. Ever since she was a little girl, she would dream about it. She would imagine it. She would plan it. And after years of thinking, dreaming, and imagining, the day was finally here. Every detail of her wedding was planned. I mean every detail, from the food to the appetizers, to which tuxes they would wear, to which dresses would be worn, to the hairstyles, to the flowers, to the shoes, and even the little decorated napkins that sat on the guest table. Everything had been planned down to the exact detail. Everything had been chosen how? Based upon what? Upon her wants, upon her desires, upon her dreams. However, when the details of the wedding went out to friends and family members, not everyone was quite so happy and thrilled about the plans for the wedding. The mother of the bridesmaid, she didn't like the order of the wedding, and she had some suggestions of how it would be improved. One of the bridesmaids, she thought that the wedding's ending song that they were all going to walk out with wasn't a very good choice. And she had a few that she thought would be much better. One of the groomsmen didn't like the pocket hankies and how they were folded. Well, another groomsman did like the pocket hankies, but he didn't like the shoes and he wanted to wear his own. The sister of the bride, she didn't like who she was walking down the aisle with. And so as you can see, this wedding party, when they arrived for the rehearsal, had many suggestions and improvements that would make this bride's wedding all the better. And so they arrived for the rehearsal, and many in the wedding party were already in full bridesmaidzilla mode, giving all their suggestions for what the bride should do for her wedding. And so they showed up and began strongly suggesting improvements that could be made to her wedding. We should do it like this, she heard. How about we do it like that, people mentioned. I know, 
I have a better way if we change it to be like this. And so, finally, noticing this, the pastor who was officiating the wedding stood up, calmed everybody down, asked them to gather for the rehearsal, but before he did, he gave them a much-needed reminder that they all needed to hear, and it was this, it's not your wedding. That's what he told them. He went on to explain, some of you have already been married, some of you may one day still be married. And that was your wedding day, and for those others, your wedding day is still yet to come. But however, today is not that day. It's the bride's wedding day. So all your opinions, all your ideas of how you think it should go, all your thoughts, all of that is not for today. Because today, it's the bride's day. It is her wedding. And so what he told them was, We're going to do it how she wants, not how you all want. For this day is about her, not you. You know, church, when it comes to worship, sometimes we forget a very important truth, and it's this. It's not about you. It's not even about us. What is worship about? It's about God. It's about what he wants, what he desires. And because we forget this, sometimes the church turns into a bunch of bridesmaidzillas running around with all their ideas of how worship should go when God is sitting there like, I've said how I want this to go, and it's my day, not your day. We must remember then that worship is about God. And because worship is about God, we must remember That my preferences, my tastes, my desires, and my ideas, they don't matter at all. Why? Because it's his day, not ours. That's what we are doing on the Lord's day. We are coming together to celebrate God and who he is and what he has done. And as we do that, we must ask the question, what does he want? Not What do I want? Has anyone here ever heard this question after church? Or maybe you've asked this question. What did you think of the worship today? Anybody ever asked that or heard that asked? Yes. That's the wrong question. What's the right question? The right question is, what did God think of our worship today? Isn't that the right question? It absolutely is. Because what God thinks of our worship, that's all that matters. It's his day, not ours. And so that's the question we have to ask. Do you see then how backwards evangelical Christian culture has gotten this? From picking their music based upon survey polls. Hey, what do you people want? And even further, sometimes they go to say, hey, what do unbelievers want to listen to at church? What kind of music do they like? That's not the right question. The right question is, what does God want? Well, wait a minute, preacher. God didn't really tell us what he wants, so we've got to figure this out and just, you know, kind of do what we want and hope that's what he wants. Well, really, might I ask you a simple question? What is the largest book in the entire Bible? The book of Psalms. And what is the book of Psalms? We don't have many more, but it's a hymnal. That's what the book of Psalms is. 
That is a detailed example of song after song after song, which not only reveals things about God's character, who he is and what he's done, but it gives us the model for what our worship should look like. See, I've been around for 38 years now, and in these 38 years, I've been a part of all sorts of worship conversations. Should we worship with an organ? Should we worship with a guitar? Should we worship with hymn books, or should we put it up on the projector screen? Should we worship with this group that is more modern, or this group that they've been dead for 400 years? Amen to that. But you get the idea here. There's so many questions that are surrounding our worship. And don't get me wrong, those are good questions But those questions go underneath the main question. And what's the main question, church? What does God want? Not what do I want? And only once we have that question grounded can we begin to examine how we must worship him. The Psalms is a hymn book which shows us exactly what God wants. And in fact, we can go outside of the book of Psalms. And there's numerous passages and texts that show us the kind of worship that God accepts because there is a kind of worship that God does not accept. Cain and Abel, right? God has told us a whole lot about worship. He's told us a whole lot about how he demands to be worshipped, not how he suggests to be worshipped. It's a demand, not a suggestion. And because God demands worship from us, In a special way, in a very detailed way, we must not be bridezillas going around trying to ruin the party. It's not our day. It's his day. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 100, where we are going to see four characteristics that make up right and proper worship. Here they are. Here's the first one. It's right worships, first off, What does it do? It shouts joyfully. Look at verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Now, interestingly enough here, this word noise, okay? And I know we're doing a word study here, and that doesn't always equate, but it's helpful sometimes. And that word for noise is exactly the same Hebrew word that's used when the walls of Jericho fell. Well, what happened? What did the Israelites do? Marched around the city, and then when they shouted, right? the same word that's used there. And so in verse 1 here, I think it carries the same idea. And it's talking about our worship is to be loud. It's to be joyful. Not quiet and reserved where, you know, we're like, praise God from whom... No, that's not the kind of worship that God wants. God wants loud worship. And it doesn't matter if you're tone deaf. Praise God to that, right? God wants loud worship. He doesn't want, this is one of the reasons that we try to adjust our balance levels here so we can hear the primary instrument we want to hear. And what is that, church? You all. That's what we want to hear. We want to hear these voices coming together, as verse 1 says, making a joyful noise unto the Lord. Just turning the fader up on the sound booth doesn't cover that for a church singing joyfully and loudly in worship, does it? Why do you think it is that God demands our worship to be loud? Ever thought about that? He's just kind of in the crowd who likes his music just roaring. Is that what it is? No. It's because loud and joyful go hand in hand. They're together. They're a unit. Have you ever been to a Vikings game? Anyone here ever been to a Vikings game or a large sports game? Okay, two people. Cool. All right. Let me ask you a question. What happens when they score a touchdown or make a goal? 
gets really quiet, doesn't it? No, it gets loud. It starts roaring. And why does it get loud? Excitement. And why are they excited? It's because their team, who they care about, has done something great. That's why it gets loud. And so, church, it's the same way with us and God. If we believe that our God is great and he has done great things, when we reflect on those great things, it should cause the same type of response in our hearts. Roaring, joyful praise. In this passage, we're not going to get into the structure too much, but the structure is this. It's worship followed by reason. Okay, Worship follows reason. And then it repeats. Worship follows reason. Look at verse 1. Call to worship right here. Make a joyful noise. Verse 2, another call to worship. Serve the Lord with gladness. Why? The reason is in verse 3. The Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. The same pattern follows in verses 4 and 5. If you found out you won the lottery, or you had a great-great-uncle or something that you know, passed all of his millions of dollars of inheritance on to you, if you found out about that, would you respond and be like, wow, honey, that's, what do your spouse be like, that, that's really neat. I didn't expect that today. No. You'd be hooting and hollering in excitement about it. And so too, church, should our response be the same when it comes to reflecting on who God is and what great things he has done for us. It should absolutely lead to an excited, joyful noise. Okay, but there's just one problem, preacher. I, I don't really like to sing. It's just not my thing. I, I can't hit the notes on tune very well. It's just not really my thing. Well, guess what? It's not your day. It's God's day. It's his wedding celebration, not yours. So don't be a bridezilla and focus on your wants and your desires. Focus on his wants and his desires, which, to put it bluntly, means, you know what? Too bad. Do it anyways. That's what the, that's what the Scripture's calling us to do, isn't it? And you know what else? I honestly don't think I've ever run into a single person who doesn't like music. You're that, if you're the one person on the planet, that's weird. You get that looked at. Everybody likes music. Why? Because God made music, and he made it for his glory and our good. And so if unbelieving pagans can get together and sing at these big country concerts about you know, their dog dying, their wife leaving them, their car breaking down, and they can get all excited and emotional about silly, frivolous things like that, don't you think that we as God's redeemed, saved people can come together and put that to shame, reflecting on the great things we have to sing about? Absolutely. Well, I don't like the songs, though. They're too slow. They're too fast. They're too quiet. They're too loud. All right, Goldilocks, who says it has to be the perfect fit for you? It doesn't have to be just right for your preferences and tastes. And why? Because it's not your day. It's not your celebration. It's whose celebration? God's. But I don't know the songs very well. Okay, I understand that. All the songs that you know, we sing at this church aren't ones most people have probably heard. However, in time you will, especially if you give an effort to it. And second off, we actually, I don't know if you know this, but we put all of our songs online in a playlist on Spotify and YouTube. So you can go on there and be like, oh, I need to learn these. I can listen to them throughout the week. Why? 
so that I can show up to God's day to properly celebrate and worship him in loud joyfulness. That's what we're called to do. And so why not do your best to learn them so that you can sing them loudly and joyfully in worship to God? And why? Because it's not about us. It's about him. And singing loudly and joyfully brings glory to his great name. Oh, so I'm just supposed to sing these songs I don't like. Uh, I don't even like singing. I don't like the song. I'm just supposed to sing them in this like obedient, robotic way, right? That's what you're saying. That doesn't sound very heartfelt. It's not what I'm saying. Because our worship must absolutely involve and invoke our emotions. It must invoke our affections, which once our affections are properly activated, we have right affections for God and who he is and what he's done and not ourselves and the things of this world. You know what that results in? Proper affections lead to proper emotions. They're not the same thing. Affections are different than emotions. Affections are the bent, the predisposition of my heart towards what I like and love. And the things you like and love, you know what happens when you focus on those things? You get emotions for those things. I have affections for my family. And so there are times where I have emotions for my family, right? It follows it. The emotions are the effect. The affections are the cause, And so we must develop right affections so that those affections can rightly invoke our emotions, which as verse 1 shows us, it will result in what? Joyful and glad worship that is loudly proclaimed. And so yes, we must worship God as he's told us. There's no questions about this. But it must also be worship that involves not just outward, robotic, obedient actions, but what does God want? He wants worship of the heart. It must have both. And so if your heart just can't get into worshiping God, how he's commanded, then where do you think the problem lies? With God's heart or with your heart? Clearly, that that question is obvious. The answer is obvious there. It's our hearts. In 2 Samuel, David and his people, they had, what, what happened in that text? Well, they had just been, they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David, right? into the great city, and out of David's delight in the Lord, we read this. In verse 14 and 15, it reads, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with sounds of the horn. Now, what happened right after this text? right after these verses here. Well, I'll tell you what happened. David's wife, who was actually the daughter of King Saul, Michal, she saw David doing this. She saw David's affections resulting in strong, loud, zealous emotions for the Lord. And in verse 16, you know what she does in response? She despises him for it. And then she goes on after that to rebuke David for it because she says, David, you know what? you weren't acting very kingly. You let yourself go a little bit there. You shouldn't have done You need to be more reserved. And so in response to this, David tells her, he says, you know what, Michal? I'm actually going to become even more undignified and more humiliated than this in order to worship my great God for who he is and what he's done for me. That's what he tells her. And why does David respond this way? It's because the truth of who God is and what he has done 
led David's affections to change for himself and the things of this world, but for God. And because that, that change happened, David manifested that with changed emotions. Zealous, passionate emotions. At this church, we love doctrine, don't we? We love theological truth. We don't want to be in error. And we go at great lengths to try to avoid being in error because we love truth. And after all, worshiping God in truth is one of the criteria that Jesus gives for right worship. In John 4, he says to worship God how? In spirit and in what? Truth. Okay, it's a command. Not your truth, God's truth. And so even if you graduated from seminary, even if you're a theological wizard, even if you know your Bible inside and out, if that theological truth, if that knowledge you have of God doesn't result in your affections being stirred strongly for God, then you don't know truth at all. I don't care if you have all the doctrine right. You, you could have as much doctrinal knowledge as there is, and you know what that makes you? James tells us it makes you having demon knowledge. It doesn't matter because the truth of God must lead to changed affections, which also manifests itself in changed emotions. And if it hasn't led then to passionate worship of God, if truth hasn't led to that, then you don't know a thing about who God really is. You don't know his worth and his supreme value. You have to have both. You have to have right doctrine plus right affections, which leads to right emotions. And if you don't, it's not worshiping God as he demands. Truth must lead to joyfully loud and passionate worship. Second off, right worship not only shouts joyfully, but right worship, well, it thinks properly. So now let's go back to the other side of the spectrum. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. When it comes to worshiping God, we cannot properly worship the God that we don't know. We just can't. And so, yes, our worship, as we just went through in detail, must involve the affections which affects the emotions, but it must also be fueled and driven by doctrinal truth preacher, I mean, I know you like doctrine and you into seminary and stuff, but I just, I just don't really like it. It's not my thing. I don't like to read. I don't like to really you know, dig into all that deep stuff, right? Okay. Let me tell you, when I was dating Becky, I liked her, right? But you want to know a little secret about this is the more I came to know her over time, it resulted in me liking her even more. And so too is it, church, when it comes to God. Because knowledge should and must lead to deeper affections. And so when it comes to God, we got to know God. We have to have a passion. It needs to result in a passion for knowing God deeper and fuller. The more we come to know God and who he is and what he's done for us, the more, and hear me when I say this, the more it will supercharge our worship. It ought to. It will. Here's what Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century pastor, had to say about this. And I think he's right. He says, I should think myself in the way of my duty, as a pastor talking, to do what? To raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, 
And here's, here's the caveat. Provided that they are affected with nothing but truth. Worship that's driven by your own emotions. Worship that is driven by emotional manipulation. Not truth is not worship. It's not. You understand why Edward said this? It's because worship without knowledge is nothing but worshiping the feeling of worship. That's a scary thing to think about. You can come to church on Sundays. You can be moved emotionally and strongly by the music, and the result wasn't actually worship. The result was worshiping the feeling of worship. It feels good to feel emotions in worship, doesn't it? Of course it does. But that, if we're not careful, we can be worshiping the feeling of worship and not the God that we should be worshiping. And do you know what we call that? We call that idolatry. For it is nothing but worshiping our own emotions, which is to worship ourselves. And so to worship God properly requires that that worship be fueled by doctrinal and theological truth. And so when it comes to worship, this is why at our church, even before I listen to a song, I sit down and read the song. Because I don't want to be manipulated potentially by the music and its power and its sway. I want to know, hey, is this going to fuel our worship here for who God is and what he has done? The emotional aspect of this, the the poetry, the beauty of the music comes much after, much after that doctrinal truth. And it ought to, for we're commanded worship that way. When we sing of God and his attributes of how he is a being of infinite perfection, we sing immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. What a great song magnifying God's wonderful attributes. We sing songs that sing of God's love, of his mercy and grace towards unbelieving sinners. We sing what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And finally, in response to these glorious truths, we sing loudly with shouts of joy and worship and praise to our great God, singing, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake then, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. And when we've come to consider the immense greatness of our God, as explained in these words, we then respond, as the author of Hebrews tells us, when it comes to worship, we respond how? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's a command in Hebrews. He says, worship God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Do I need to remind you what that fire did to Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, when they worshipped God wrongly. They were consumed by it. It shot out and killed them on the spot for their improper worship. Do I need to remind us of the fate of Uzzah, who when 
reached out, trying to steady the ark. He had good intentions. He didn't want the ark to fall over when it hit that little bump in the road. And God had said what? Don't touch the ark. And he reached out to steady it and touched it, and God struck him dead on the spot. God didn't care about his intentions. He didn't care about the desires of Uzzah's heart. He cared about obedience because it was his day. It is his moment, and that is what worship is about. We must worship God solely as he is commanded, and we must do so with reverence and awe, knowing that our God is a consuming fire who will judge all those who disobey him. This is why these Jesus is my boyfriend songs are extremely inappropriate. I don't care how they make us feel. They're wrong. We don't sing about the creator of the universe as if we're singing about our first crush. We don't do that. This is why we don't sing 7-Eleven songs that, seem, that sing the same seven words 11 times in order, in a vain repetitious sort of way, to get ourselves stirred up into this emotional frenzy where we just keep chanting it over and over and over. It's to focus on our emotions and not who God is. We don't sing songs that focus on us and what we are going to do, what we are going to accomplish. Why? Because the focus is wrong. I was reading this last week of, it was the guy who drew or did the painting of the Lord's Supper. I believe it was the Lord's Supper. And he brought it to a friend and he said, what do you think? His friend said, oh my goodness, this is wonderful. How did you make those cups look that good? His friend took it back, took the paint right over the cups. He says, what are you doing? He says, that's not what I wanted you to focus on. I wanted Christ to be the focus of this painting. So too, church, must it be with our worship. God, who he is and what he has done, not ourselves. Yes, we'll mention that, as the Psalms does, but it is always under the umbrella of God's greatness for who he is and what he has done. Our worship must be driven by the truth of God, which results in proper affections of God, which then results in the outpouring of emotions for God in joyful praise of God's great name. And this must not just be Sunday mornings. Yes, it absolutely should be Sunday mornings, but not just Sunday mornings. We don't show up, we don't you know, check our card, All right, I did my worship, I did my duty, I'm on my way. No, it must be throughout our entire lives, which leads us to our third point. Right worship shouts joyfully. It thinks properly, but third, right worship serves gladly. Look at verse 2. Serve the Lord how? With gladness. Come into his presence with singing. <clears throat> Do you remember why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? Well, we can't say that it's because it was grain and not a lamb, because the text doesn't tell us that, does it? Might be the case, but it doesn't tell us that. But we do know that there was something wrong with Cain, not Cain's sacrifice. That was the primary issue there, if not the issue. There was something wrong with Cain's heart when he approached God to worship. And this is, uh, I think this is explained well in Isaiah 29, 13. Here's what God says about heartless worship. 
And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, well, their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They didn't fear God. And because they didn't fear God, they just gave lip service to God. They didn't approach God with reverence and awe, with fear and trembling, because they had just been taught it by men. They didn't actually come to know and believe that God was a God to be feared. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, you remember what he said. He answered them and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. What a perfect summary and encapsulation of what our worship must be. Church, God doesn't just want emotionally driven worship. God doesn't just want theologically accurate lip service for worship. Church, God wants a heart that loves and longs for him so much that it is completely consumed with him, which then results in worshiping him and serving him throughout our entire lives. Serving him is worship. And if we are not serving him outside of Sundays, we are not truly worshiping him. Romans 12.1 tells us this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How do we do that? One way and one way only, by living thankfully, which leads us to the third point. Right worship shouts joyfully, it thinks properly, it serves gladly, Sorry, our fourth point, and it lives thankfully. Psalm 100, verses 4 through 5. Let's read these. Enter his gates how? With thanksgiving. And his courts with praise. Give thanks. There it is again, the, the way we enter the gates. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. When the Jewish people came together in the assembly to worship, where did they go? To the temple, right? And they had to pass through the temple gates in order to join the assembly to worship God. They would enter through the temple gates on the way. And how does verse 4 say that they are to enter through those gates? In what kind of a way? Thankfully. Exactly, with thanksgiving. Why thankfully, though? Verses 4 and 5 here give us the why or the because, and it's because of what? Because the Lord is God. He made us. We are his people, his sheep. And we are his sheep. Why? Because God is good. Not because we're good. It's because of his goodness. He is steadfast love. He is steadfast. His love endures forever, for he is faithful to all generations. One pastor I looked at this week, he had a good point here, and it was this. Why were the Israelites God's people? Why were they the sheep of his pasture? You remember? What great event did God miraculously do to make them his people? The Exodus, right? The Exodus where God saved them from slavery. 
See, over and over throughout the Old Testament, God reminds the Israelites that I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. He reminds them over and over that he was the one who saved them from bondage, from slavery. And it's not like the reason God picked them was because he's like, oh man, this is the only people group ever to be in bondage and slavery. I'm going to pick them for that reason. No, they were one of many. And so why did God decide to save them out of Egypt? Sheer grace. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8. We've read this verse before, but let's read it again. The Lord did not set his love on you, Israel, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For in fact, you were fewer than all. But because the Lord loved you, you see that? But because he loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, for the hand of, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This verse shows us pretty clearly what sheer grace looks like, doesn't it? God loved the Israelites. Why? Because he loved them. It's a circular argument. He doesn't say, I loved you because you were mighty, you know, obedient, all these things. Because if that's our basis for our love, and we can lose God's love, that's a terrifying thing. No, God loves because of sheer grace. He loved them because he loved them, the reasons within himself. And so it was by grace that God called them out of slavery in the land of Egypt. It was by grace that God passed over them in judgment when he didn't to the Egyptians when he killed the firstborn of every home. It was by grace that God opened the Red Sea so that they could pass through safely. It was by grace that God defeated enemies that were greater than them whom they had no chance against on their own. And it was by grace that God fed them. It was by grace that God clothed them and made so their clothes wouldn't deteriorate while they were in the wilderness. And it was by grace that God brought them into the promised land. You know what, church? Though you and I were not a part of Israel's grace-given exodus, Israel's exodus, you know what that's a foreshadowing of? You know all this points to? It points to the even greater exodus, which was to come. And how, what exodus are we talking about here? What is this great exodus? Well, the great exodus is found and given, as we know now, looking back, it's found in Jesus Christ. It is. For in Christ, you and I were called out of spiritual slavery and bondage, weren't we? In Christ, we were all passed over in judgment, We deserved it like everyone else, but we were passed over in judgment by the blood on the door. But this time, it was the blood of Christ which was spilt, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. In Christ, God passed through dangerous waters on our behalf so that he could open the way to the ultimate promised land. And all this is done, why? Sheer grace, which is exactly why we enter his gates, how? With thanksgiving. If you're a true child of God, you don't need me to manipulate you in worship with smoke machines, with properly dimming lights, perfectly timed pauses, and service flow. You don't need that. For a child of God, they don't need all that because they have all they need to worship God, their infinitely great king. A king who is good, 
a king whose steadfast love endures forever and is faithful to all generations. And here's the thing. Hear me when I say this. The degree to which you come to understand and grasp that is the degree to which you will worship God rightly and truly. How? With right worship that involves loud shouts of joy. It involves proper thinking of God. It involves glad service, not just on Sundays, but in our entire lives of him and a life that is thankfully lived. That's all you need, and it's going to result in that. Worship is about God, not us. So don't be a bridesmaidzilla. It's his day, not ours. But at the same time, and here's the remarkable thing about this worship of God on his big day, we find something remarkable, and we find this. True worship of God, though it's not about us, benefits us immensely with true joy and real happiness. That is where true joy and happiness are found. It's what we were made for. Are you living a life of true worship? If not, then I think it's fair to say you haven't entered his gates properly with thanksgiving. And if you haven't entered his gates with thanksgiving, it's because you haven't truly come to see his infinite worth and love, his majesty, his glory. And as we know now, looking back, that, the ultimate display of that was upon the cross of Jesus Christ, who died for us to take away the sins of the world so that by grace through faith in him, we can enter the gates with thanksgiving. That's the only reason you and I can do that. It's not because we muster up this attitude of thankfulness. No, it's because Christ did the work for us. And because he did, as Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 reads, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, right? that's temple-like language, okay? By how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It is because Christ opened that new living way that we can rightfully worship God as we were created to do. And that is the only reason. And so may we be a church that draws near to God in true worship, with loud shouts of joy, with right thoughts, with hearts that serve him gladly and hearts that are filled with thankfulness. And why? Because our God is worthy of all worship, honor, and praise. Father, I thank you for this text. Lord, I just pray for this church. There are so many voices out there for what makes for right worship. There's seminars we can go to. There's books we can read. But Father, we just ask that the primary source we look to above all is you and what you have told us for how we are to worship you. It's about you, not us. So help us to remember that. And ultimately, we ask, Lord, that 
in remembering that, that it wouldn't result in this robotic lip service-based worship, but that we would come to experience true joy that's found in worshiping you for who you are and what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.